everybody. Welcome back. This is the Internet of Things podcast, and I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And here is your excellent co-host, Kevin Tofel. And this week, we are getting us started with some big news for Google I.O., which is Google's big developers conference held in California. Kevin, what do we have up Google's sleeve this week? A whole lot of stuff. Google typically unveils its latest and greatest version of Android, which I'm sure it will do, although I don't think they'll actually launch it. They usually show it off and then launch it in the fall. More important to the show, though, is talk of Google's connecting all the things with Brillo. Uh, This is an Android-based platform for the Internet of Things. So I would anticipate this to be a keynote announcement, and the keynote is on Thursday of this week. Curious to see what they're doing. It seems to be a light version of Android. My guess is like the communications and notification stack, and it would run on really light hardware. So we'll have to see. The funny thing is, do you remember, Stacey, that Google did something similar back in 2011 called Android at Home? I do. And it looks like of the people who are still at Google who used to work on Android at Home, I think some of those guys are still working on this. That could be because Android at Home in my opinion, was generally a flop. Nothing really came of that. And I, I kind of think that was more of the timing. You know, I don't think IoT was getting to be close to mainstream then. We talked about it on the last show. It's only just now really starting to go mainstream. And I just think it was ahead of its time. Even, I mean, even devices like Fitbit weren't even coming out until like 2012, I think, is when mm-hmm. we first started. I first started writing about connected devices in the CES of 2012, I want to say. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was probably pretty early. I mean, there were still connected devices, but people weren't like, woo, let's connect all the things. Philips Hue yeah. lights came out, I believe, in October of 2013 or maybe, yeah, I think it was October. That's about right. 2013 yeah. or 2012. Yeah. Time well, flies when you're having fun. Indeed. And four years makes a big difference. I mean, just in terms of mainstream awareness of connected things, the fact that we've got much better hardware that's low power and we're kind of getting some consolidation and, and you know agreement on what radios and protocols to use. So again, I think it was ahead of its time, but it doesn't matter now. I mean, that's to me, Android at Home is a goner. It's now going to be presumably Brillo. You know, this, I guess this is going to battle uh, Apple's HomeKit platform and Samsung Tizen. Well, so there's some things to know about this. One is Mike Wolf, who is a smart home analyst, has talked to people in the know at Google, and he says that the guy in charge of all this is a man named Craig Barrett, who is not Intel's Craig Barrett, but uh, Craig Barrett, who is the former CEO of Atheros, which was a mm-hmm. Wi-Fi chip company that was bought by Qualcomm. And so he's been at Google since 2013, and apparently Google's been talking to router makers to try to get Brillo installed into kind of routers. And what Mm -hmm. they're looking for is what's called a real-time operating system. And it looks like this wouldn't be like a super like low-end RTOS, but something that would run on a router and on devices around the home so they, that you wouldn't need a smart hub basically. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in the past, but the idea of getting rid of the hub is just great. I I would love not to have an extra device plugged into my router. Or devices if you need multiple hubs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other important thing here that we should note is Google is getting behind, with Craig, it's possible that Google's getting behind Wi-Fi um, and Thread because Nest, which is owned by Google, 
is mm-hmm. a big proponent of Thread, which is a wireless protocol based on the 802.14 protocol, which we're getting all radio wonky, but basically it's the same radio that also powers Zigbee. Zigbee's just a different type of software that's running on top of it. Mm-hmm. So what we can take from this is like things like Z-Wave and Zigbee are kind of getting left out of the newer generation of kind of connected home products. Because if you look at what Google's doing with Brillo, that's going to be Wi-Fi based, probably, probably Wi-Fi, maybe Bluetooth or Wi-Fi and thread. And then you've got Apple, which is doing HomeKit around Wi-Fi and probably Bluetooth. So no Zigbee, no Z-Wave. Hmm. I'm not going to say I told you so, but... uh... (laughs) Wait a second. Wait a second. Go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. You told me. (laughs) I don't, I don't think these are going to go away, but... Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, yes, they're... As somebody, I think it was Alex Hawkinson, the president of SmartThings, the CEO of SmartThings that was bought by Samsung. He called mm-hmm. those, he's like, yeah, those are kind of legacy protocols. So they're, they're old school. They're dinosaurs. They're legacy. The, the, the problem is now that we're getting to mainstream awareness of this market, those are not mainstream known protocols and radios. Wi-Fi, that's ubiquitous. Bluetooth, most people even get that. So I think that has a lot to do with this. I agree. Now, Thread's going to be a tough sell. Um, Thread is totally new. Mm -hmm. And to make matters worse, or maybe it'll make it better, Zigbee and Thread have done this kind of co-marketing agreement or co-software agreement where they're going to, you're going to be able to develop Thread stuff will work on certain Zigbee platforms. Mm -hmm. So that'll be kind of interesting going forward. So maybe it's only Z-Wave that gets left out in the code. Cold. yeah, it's it's hard to say that it's you know we're seeing consolidation here in, in the approaches. Um, I think it's also worth noting in, in Mike Wolf's piece that according to what he's found out, Brillo is not part of Tony Fidel's group, which is the Nest group over at Google. And that's actually something that I had talked to my sources about too. Mm-hmm. So in in discovering what Google was doing along with Mike, I've actually heard the same thing on the not part of Nest part. That's a little surprising to me. I don't think so, because Google has made it very clear, or rather the Nest guys have made it very clear that they're not part of Google. And I think that's probably a Mm. wise move, because Google is known for vacuuming up tons of data, and the Nest guys have the potential to vacuum a lot of data, and it's from your home. And so I can see the the need to keep those two kind of entities separate. Mm -hmm. I will also say, though, that Google, by pushing Wi-Fi and pushing this kind of operating system on devices, especially if it's an IPv6 or like thread-based and Wi-Fi-based, that's straight to the cloud as Mm -hmm. opposed to going, it doesn't have to go through any other device. That's a very Google-centric approach because it will send Mm -hmm. data from the device straight to the cloud. And they're huge fans of that because that gives them the ability to get as much data as they can. And that is their standard operating procedure. I mean, that's their whole revenue stream is pretty much built upon that, taking that data and then delivering contextual ads. Well, I don't think we're going to see ads on our door locks, but I do no, think... No, no, but but get, it's all tied to your Google account. That's the, the tie that binds everything together. So my, while you won't see ads on your door lock, if you know there could be information gathered by the door lock that puts an ad, a relevant ad on your phone the next time you do a Google search. I think 
more likely what we're going to see is Google selling more context about mm. you or Google providing services that you'll eventually pay for based on the data they have about you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that it's going to be as simple as ads based on, oh, are you home during these hours of the day? Here's some demographic profiling we can do. Yeah, I that's think, a fair point. I think it'll be a little bit more interesting than that. God, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> otherwise, you know, because this gets into things like, you know, how you can't, there's, there's laws in place to protect children on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. For advertising. So if you're 13... You can't collect certain data about children. Well, in the home, there's there's no guarantees that you know you're not collecting data about a child who's coming mm. into the home, right? That's and so true. you can't use that data for marketing. So, so you, you mean you really don't want to walk up to your front door, forget your keypad number and all that, and instead just watch a thirty second video ad to get in your house? I mean, you know, yesterday <laughs> it was yesterday that there were tornadoes, so I'm going to say no. Oh, okay, no. No. Boo. Like, Please, Google, no. <laughs> Let no me doorbell in. ads. I'm like, The Wizard <laughs> of Oz, it's on tonight at 8 o'clock. Google! <laughs> well, that's contextual. It is contextual. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So uh, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. Let's go to the next piece of news that I thought was actually really good for the Internet of Things. And that is Alarm.com on Friday filed to go public. They filed to raise $75 million through an initial public offering, which is significant for the smart home space because Alarm.com says that it is the largest company in this space. Mm. I don't know if I believe that, but that, that well, is... I mean, I don't know either, but you know, I, I'm looking at the piece that you wrote, and they're they're saying or telling you that they've got 2.3 million subscribers. They're telling the SEC that, so well, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, they can lie to me, but you know, if That's you lie true. to the SEC, you get in a lot of trouble. So, Alarm.com, for those of you guys who don't know, started out in 2000 as this kind of a security company, and they've kind of branched into selling home automation, just like all the other companies out there. Maybe not all, but many of the other companies out there. And what I found most interesting in their their S1 filing was, A, that they're profitable. They, they're actually doing pretty well for themselves. They've grown significantly. They reported $167.3 million in revenue last year, um, a net income of 563000 And they're growing. And the other thing is, I'm not sure how long that growth is going to last. They, they have this amazing churn rate, which is the amount of customers that renew basically mm -hmm. their service and it's at the 93 to 94% of their customers renew each year hmm. but their customers are service providers oh not end users not end users they the 2.3 million subscribers that they say they have are the end users mm -hmm. and those end users are locked into 3 to 5 year contracts with the service providers. And that makes sense because typically they will subsidize the equipment for the house and the installation with a long-term contract. So yes, but what actually happens in Alarm.com's case is hmm. you buy the equipment from them mm -hmm. um, and then the, they sell to the service provider the monitoring software on an annual basis. So what I would be looking for is maybe next year and the year after that is for that Keep an eye on their churn figures because I suspect as those three to five year contracts come up, mm -hmm. the end customers are going to probably look to like maybe alternative solutions out there, maybe DIY. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Like, even like ADT just launched, they haven't, 
they, they announced they haven't actually launched a new all-in-one kind of security box camera sensor package thing. But I think that's kind of an, a wave of the future. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Watch the uh, watch to see who renews after those three to, three to five year contracts are up, because there are just going to be so many more choices. Everything will be cheaper, uh, and you 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 can probably be competent enough, and and the devices will be simple enough that you can do it yourself. Sure, especially depending on what Google and Apple launch this summer. Woohoo! Hmm. Yes. Okay, and let's see. We've got some cool. I was going to say we got some cool back to school things for you. Kevin, you saw a fun project on Kickstarter. Did you want to talk about it? Yeah, I think this is perfect for a back-to-school little gift for your your curious child. Uh, I mean, Kickstarter's got tons of stuff. I mean, you could sit there all day and look at different projects. But this particular one caught my eye. It's the Microduino M cookie. They are small electronic modules that are compatible with Legos, of all things. So think of Arduino, but being in a smaller package and that can... Be connected to Legos, so you can like make stacks of different devices. You can like build your own little devices with Legos and give them smarts with the Microduino. Think. Let me just double check what the delivery time is. July. So that's why I said back to school. The initial early birds are all gone, but here's what you would have gotten. I mean, you can still get it. It's just going to cost you a little more. For $68, you got the M-Cookie 101 Basic Kit, which was four modules and six sensors, along with a bunch of instructions and an LED microphone that lights up, a Bluetooth-controlled Bluetooth LED, tons of tons of little projects you can make with this. I, I, I just love the idea for this for, you know, again, inquisitive kids. And it's it's actually, so if you didn't catch the... The sixty-eight dollars—it's only seventy-eight dollars now. Yeah, that's reasonable. That's it is. reasonable. It's totally I mean, reasonable. I I, I paid I think thirty-five for my Arduino, and I can't play with Legos and, and my Arduino at the same time. So right there, that's a bonus. There you go. And the fatter kits, there's there's one for a hundred and fifty dollars. It's it's one forty-eight, but that's the advanced kit, and that gives you eight modules, thirteen sensors and a whole bunch of other accessories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can make things like a music box, a joystick. Ooh, an electronic puppy. That would Ooh. be so fun. Yeah. Or... Do you have to go outside? No, that's good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, the ooh, the $258 kit gets you a weather station. You can make a weather station or a time-lapse photography controller. Okay. For that cost, I'm thinking that's a Christmas gift. Well, okay. Or, you know, <laughs> it's science. I know. Um, I know. So the, the closest analog to this, I would say, and I'm not trying to make a joke there, is mm-hmm. uh, Little Bits. It, it yes. very much reminded me of Little Bits, but I don't think my Little Bits are compatible with Legos. And so if you're, if you're missing your Little Bits and you really want to stick them with Legos, this is a great kind of fun project for yeah. that. And they've, they've got little cookies, little stackable Lego cookies for everything. There's an NFC thing. There's Zigbee. There's, you can add Wi-Fi. You can add... Uh, GSM cellular capabilities for crying out loud. There's tons of different modules here. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we actually have used the little bits and the cloud bit sensor to make like IoT devices for our house. And we tie them together through if this and that Mm -hmm. through other like we'll make like a pressure sensor or something else. This sort of thing is a really fun way if you have a kid or maybe you're just not totally comfortable building on your own like with sensors you can Mm -hmm. get something like this and you can make your own like connected doorbell or you can make your own motion sensor and you can kind of start to have fun building exactly what you need for the scenario you're envisioning for your smart house so 
that's the key. You've got all the different building blocks with the sensors, modules, and everything else you need in these kits. Obviously, you pay more, you get more modules and such. I look at the two or $300 Lego Mindstorms robotics kit that I, I bought a couple of years back. It's really cool as well, and it's Legos, but there's only a, a very few sensors that it really comes with. You know, this has a wide range, far wider range. Yeah, I mean, the, the $260 kit has like 21 sensors. I'm looking at these and I'm like, woo, yeah. we could yeah. really have some fun with this. Um, Absolutely. I could probably have fun with the other stuff too. Um, so I, I am I am game. I, I find these things a lot of fun. I will say with my daughter who is, she's eight years old, doing this sort of thing in the house is a lot of fun for her because she can see right in front of her when we build it and we hook it up she sees the action right away and she's affecting something in her real life Mm -hmm. which makes her really like this sort of like it really gets her into like programming and building this stuff in a way that you know maybe a more abstract thing doesn't yeah sitting in front of a terminal and coding something again and again and again until you get it just right and it works is one thing but here it's and i don't want to say it's plug and play because it's not quite that easy but it's pretty darn close yeah, and she doesn't she doesn't equate it with like it's play cuz we she and I right. both treat it as play. And the other thing is if you're doing something like a haunted house or you know any sort of project like that, we we do like little plays and sketches. Mm-hmm. This is also great for building props and that sort of thing. So yeah. throwing that out there for all the parents or just creative people in the room who really want to build an awesome haunted house next year. This And because be Legos. And because Legos. <laughs> Also Legos. And other news for this week, let's just go into, shall we do it? It's time for the five-minute review. Nice, Kevin. Thank you. All right. Kevin's going to do the review this year. This year. This episode. (laughs) Okay. This is my one review for the year. That's it. You heard it here. No, no, no. Uh, So what what is it? Is it Cortana? It is Cortana because this week, this week, actually today, Today. Tuesday, Tuesday, Microsoft announced Cortana was going to be available on both iOS and Android. And Mm -hmm. I thought this was huge because I've actually never used Cortana. And I love Mm. voice. And I was like, Kevin, you've got to tell us what it's like because should I download it? I don't know. Well, I would say yes, you should. Here's the thing. You said you've never used Cortana. I'm betting most people haven't used Cortana because unfortunately for Microsoft, Windows phone share is literally around 3.7% worldwide right now. So a very small percent of the the population has used Cortana. I have used it. I do have a couple Windows phones here that I play with from time to time. Here's the best summary I can give of Cortana. And let me put it in terms that people may be familiar with. It's very similar to Apple Siri. It's also similar to the voice-controlled actions of Google Now for Android. The thing is, it kind of takes the best of both worlds. I find it far better than Siri because Cortana has a lot of contextual things that it can do. Like you could say, Cortana, remind me to wish my mother-in-law happy birthday the next time she calls. Now that's like, you can have location-based service type reminders on Siri, but you can't do what I just said on Siri, for example. 
The flip side is, like Google now, it does have contextual smarts where Cortana will be able to surface information that's important to you at the right place and the right time. The example I just gave is, a, is a, actually a perfect one. So it's kind of a blend of both worlds. I like it very much. I think it's worth downloading and installing on your iPhone or Android device when you can. The thing is, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe you can actually just go to an app store and download it. It seems to be that Microsoft is putting out an app called the Phone Companion app for Windows 10. And if you hook your Android phone or your iOS device to your Windows machine with this app, you can then use that app to push Cortana to your Android or your iPhone. I like it. I find Cortana to be very useful, far more useful than Siri. I will leave it at that. Oh, well, that's awesome, but also a little disappointing because I don't Mm. have a Windows anything in my life. Well, that's going to make it tough, at least for now. I mean, bear in mind, this is all part of the whole big Windows 10 push. So Cortana is actually going to be part of Windows 10. And so you'll have voice activation there and such. It's early days for Windows 10. It's not officially launched. It's all insider builds and so on. So it may be that Microsoft, and I would expect them to change this. I think they're just trying to get Cortana out there for people who are interested and want to test it on Android and iOS. When push comes to shove and Windows 10 launches later this year, they have to put it out there in, in the app stores. All right. Well, I'm going to hope because, you know, there, I, I love voice and I, I find that right now my favorite is still Alexa, who mm-hmm. is on the Amazon Echo. But contextually, she is she's not all that. And Google's yet. yet. And Google's is decent, but lacks a lot of, we'll just say, personality. Yep. Siri has far more personality than um, Google now. And that's why, again, I say it's Cortana is probably the best of both worlds because Cortana has a pretty good personality. Awesome. It's actually it's actually fun to use. Yay! Yeah, Google, no fun to use. No, very utilitarian. Oh, well, we won't say bleh as as you know someone who's very utilitarian and pragmatic. I I can get behind that. So I'd rather my robot overlord be pragmatic and not pretend to like me. It's less confusing that way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's see. I think that I think that's it for this week's show. Uh, stay tuned for John Mann. He is a principal at the Artifact Group, and it is a design consultancy. We're actually going to be talking about Brillo and HomeKit and kind of designing for the smart home user experience. We're also going to be talking about what we can expect from hotels and airplanes as users and how that can kind of help us adopt new technologies into the smart home. And it should be really a good show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. And we have as our guest today, John Mann, who is a design director at Artifact. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to have you today because we have a lot of really cool things to talk about that I think you're probably really going to be good at talking about them. So we'll start with a lot of news has come out about these are actually leaks. They're not actual news yet, I should clarify. But it looks like this summer is going to be a big one for the smart home and kind of how we're going to control it with Apple's HomeKit. We're not 100% sure how much we're going to see, but there is going to be something at the Worldwide Developer Conference in June. So the first or second week in June, Apple's going to announce something related to HomeKit. Possibly not the full range of devices, but something. So exciting news there. And then it just came out this last week that Google is building what looks to be a 
operating system for the Internet of Things that it is going to call Brillo. And the way that that is looking, and again, this is all based on sources. This is not from Google. A variety of news reports, including my sources, including the information, and in some from Mike Wolf, who is an analyst up in Seattle. Basically, Google has Craig Barrett, who you guys may be familiar with as a former uh, CEO of Atheros, which was a Wi-Fi chip company, is building out an operating system that looks like it's going to be inside routers, and it won't you won't have like a smart hub, but it will control a bunch of connected devices in the home. So with all of that exposition out of the way, John, tell us, what do you think about kind of all of this news? And is this the way that the smart home should kind of evolve? As you said, this has been a long time coming. Apple first announced HomeKit at WWDC last year, uh, and everyone's really been waiting with bated breath uh, ever since. And obviously, sort of the flip side of that with kind of Android and Brillo getting into the game, hopefully this is where we sort of cross that chasm, get out of the tr current trough of disillusionment, and hopefully start to see some things that work and really work together and work uh, in, in this notion where we're not diving in and out of multiple apps to make our smart home dreams come true, but it feels like a single solution. And I think that's, that's really the missing element today that's going to take the smart home and make it feel sort of effortless. I think to date, elements within the smart home have felt a little bit like multiple islands, uh, either of icons floating around, or at the very least, things like smart things, peek and wink, a single app to rule them all, but still an app that I have to get into and doesn't quite get me to the sort of uh, high-level access that Apple's iOS or, or the Google Android operating system can, can do a, only a swipe or a, a, a talking point away uh, with all of their intelligent agents. So this is really something to, to start looking pretty closely at, and hopefully we won't continue to be disappointed. But today's sort of smart home islands are, are not quite uh, pulling their weight um, and certainly not uh, mainstream ready yet. So I'm going to sort of disagree with you because I feel like while these are, well, we won't call them islands because they're bigger. They're more like continents. They are still separate continents. And, you know, my husband actually carries an iPhone. I carry an Android. And I look at this and I, I kind of am like, oh, nuts. This could be difficult. I think that's a great point. And one of the things that we often forget is when we deal with multiple users. And a home is, um, it's, it's more... Uh, it's certainly more personal, and it's our sanctuary, but at the same time, it's a sanctuary of us, typically more so than the sanctuary of me. So that multi-user component uh, and knowing that they could be on multiple platforms, definitely an interesting point. The other point I'd like to bring up about this kind of future with all of these devices is they still revolve around my smartphone, even if there's like a hub or the Wi-Fi router is the brains of the operation, or maybe it's like an Apple TV box or whatever. But I still think that the end goal should be a much more contextually aware home, kind of like what Tony Fidel from Nest talks about, which is my house responds to me as opposed to me ordering my house to do things. And I don't know, from your perspective, how far are we actually away from something like that? Yeah, I don't think we're too far away from that. And that's an excellent point. And, and in many ways, hopefully, what having these larger platform players involved 
that will get us closer to. So you make a great point. Context is important. Intent is important. And it shouldn't have to be the expressed intent of pushing a button, whether that button is on my wall, in my pocket, or on my wrist, or even a voice command. There are things that these systems can start to know as they learn about us where it doesn't become a requirement that we're interacting with them. And the, the really interesting component of that is how do you get that set up? How, do you, how does the user understand what those opportunities are or we, what even their own intents are? And sort of in many ways, the role of the system is in helping to, to discover those and present the opportunities. Because today with most many of these smart home systems, whether it's what we think we'll see from HomeKit or even Brillo, it's so much about this expression of what do I want to do before I've done it? Understanding, I like this current context. Why don't we call this sort of, this is dinner. And lights are right, the music and everything, and, and that's what dinner's going to be. And so when dinner happens, this should be what happens. Um, in some ways, Harmony did that a long time ago with sort of having things that are activity-based, although we still have to kind of pull out a remote and hit watch TV. But the sooner that we can understand those contexts and do things on behalf of the user, and at the beginning with their permission, because it's odd if you do something and it was unexpected, but after it becomes a pattern and repetition, then we can do those things and take something off the user's plate. And I think that's where things start to become magical. And I think on the way to that magic, we're going to get a lot of these kind of autocorrect type feelings where your house is going to be like, oh, I think it's dinner time and it's going to dim the lights and you're going to be suddenly in the middle of trying to, I don't know, work on a project late at night. And you're like, oh, no house. No, it's not dinner time. Please, lights up. And the house is going to be like, oh, sorry, my bad. But I do think we'll get there. I'm very optimistic. Absolutely. And it's one of those places where the more data points we have, the more information and awareness that the system has, the more it can be a bit more accurate with those, with understanding those patterns and the nuance. And that's part of having these systems that work together in unison rather than being their own islands of sensors, of inputs and, and outputs. That's the kind of thing where we need more cooperation across devices, that sort of not just interoperability of the data itself, but the meaning behind that data. And that's where it's going to be, I think, the, the really interesting innovations are going to come from, is the, the companies trying to make sense of patterns. And so machine learning is going to be key. Like that's what's going to take the smart home and make it smart, not just a remote control that happens to be on me at all times. All right. Well, let's think about bringing the smart home to the masses. How is it that we're going to kind of bring this to the mainstream? And you mentioned earlier before the show, places like Disney and experiences in kind of other business locales as being a good way to get people introduced to this beyond just like blog posts and marketing campaigns. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Disney's FastPass, which is kind of right now the gold standard in the Internet of Things and not necessarily home automation, but automation and delivering an awesome experience to people. You know, I think one of the things that Disney's always done and done so well is they put us into the future. Epcot Center way back when I was a kid, Tomorrowland and, and everything they've been doing, it is a full experience. Um, and it's a great exercise in, in this sort of end-to-end -end service design. And so the Magic Band is pretty remarkable in that, in that sense because it starts from the point of, 
before you've even gone to Disney, you sort of get this band in the mail, you unpack it, and it's already sort of got your information and, and is personalized and you can do something with it. And the moment you walk into Disney, they know your name um, and they can create some really interesting magical experiences when Mickey just comes up to you and says, hi, Stacy," to understanding where you are and, and how they can help improve your experience while you're there, getting, getting past lines or uh, letting you know where there's uh, another activity or ride you want to do that, that is not as crowded right now and beyond all that. So, and that's what we want our smart home to be. And when you see these magical experiences in this, this world of Disney, you start to understand or you get exposed to well, what happens when all of this intelligence comes together. And so there are opportunities in hotels in the airline experience, these sort of really end-to-end service design industries to start exposing the consumer to what's the value of, of smarts in integration of technology and, and uh, intent and, and the per, your, your person personalization and your context. So if we think about hotels are just starting to do this a little today. I can uh, go to a Starwood hotel, walk up to the door, and, and my, my phone or my, my Apple Watch uh, will unlock the door, and that's kind of a magical experience. And there's opportunity beyond that as you start to integrate your content traveling with you, your likes and media, and even your alarm clock automatically being set within the room based on what you might do on, on your phone or your watch. And so when we think about an end-to-end experience, airlines, again, is, is sort of for for two hours, for six hours, we're, we're captive. You know, how do we engage the user from that moment they purchase their tickets, even if it's a day, a week, a month before their trip, to having that information on you, smoothing through the check-in experience, sitting in your seat and having your favorite music, your content, uh, your drink type kind of all there. Uh, and it becomes an experience that's so hyper-personal to you and deeply integrated with technology. And so that's where we start to understand, well, what could my home do? Oh, sure. Now, when I think about getting on a plane, especially for like a an overnight kind of trip or a red eye flying across the ocean to a different time zone, especially thinking about doing some of these circadian rhythm like light cycles, that would be amazing. And all you'd have to do is replace the LEDs on the plane with, you know, a slightly smarter LED. And then you could run like a, you know, oh, I'm going from, you know, Dallas, Texas to Sydney, Australia. Can you run a a circadian rhythm cycle that puts me at the right time zone when I land. I look at stuff like that, and I'm I'm really excited. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if if you take that to that sort of that full Disney context, if you had a smart home, when I bought that plane ticket, and we understand the calculation that you're going to Sydney, Australia, and here's the time difference, the circadian rhythms affecting that via light can actually happen automatically in your home starting a week before the trip, and. It's that's the sort of magic where if these systems are open to where the triggers, the intent are talking to each other, users shouldn't have to think about that. I don't know if I'd let my airline, I don't know if I have a tr- enough trust in my airline that I'd be like, yeah, you know what? United, you can have access to my lights. I'd be like, nope, nope, you cannot. And that that kind of brings up issues about like when you when you start having this very interconnected world and you start sharing this kind of levels of personal data not even personal data but access to your home and control who are you going to share that with because i sure as heck there are companies out there that i'm like nope you're not getting any of it 
not not ever. Oh, it's it's a great point. Um, and you know, it, there's a big component of trust. Uh, and what's important when we do talk with clients is to present some realities about where trust currently exists with their brand. Who do I trust with some of this information? And uh, and and even there's a notion of time limits, which we don't really see too much today. It's sort of an all or nothing, uh, never or forever. But how do I set a time limit on something where, you know, United for this flight to get me to Australia and to make that a pleasant experience for the next week and a half or um, starting now and finishing as soon as my flight lands, I'm going to give them trust for that within a boundary of what what can they access. Presenting that clear value proposition, what does the user get from disclosing some level of privacy or giving some level of access to their technology and their lives? Those are the things that brands have to get right first. User experience aside, it all comes down to, is this worth a trade-off? Is this exciting for me? We can't get overly excited just by the technology, and that's the biggest challenge that technology companies have. Those are the things we have to focus on first because that's what's going to drive the adoption, right? I mean, we've always talked about in our industry, what's the killer app? What's the thing where you're like, oh, my God, I need that to happen? And that, in many ways, is is the sort of missing proposition for some of the smart home. I think we're getting smarter about it now. Yeah, I think the challenge with presenting the smart home and selling the smart home to people is that, and you mentioned it before, the the home is both shared, but it's also very personal. And so everybody wants different things, and different people in the home want different things out of it. So it's very hard to market this stuff. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Stacey. I had a great time. That's all for this week's show. Stay tuned for next week. Thank you.